Consider for just a moment the men and the women of history who you would consider to be a great leader. Who are some of those names that might come to your mind? Great leaders throughout human history have gripped our imagination. They propel us and motivate us with their examples. A few that come to my mind are Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England during the Second World War, who showed us perseverance under pressure. Or you might think of Martin Luther, that great reformer of the Catholic Church turned Protestant, who was so convinced and convicted by God's word that he would hold to nothing else aside from the word of God. Or of Martin Luther King Jr., that's a different guy than Martin Luther, who dreamed of a more just society. I wonder what sort of leadership quality comes to your mind when you consider one of our founding fathers, George Washington. What would you say is a mark of his kind of leadership? Perhaps you would think of courage. Perhaps you would think of resilience or conviction. All these things would be true of him, and yet I believe perhaps the deepest mark he has left on our nation was not based on his courage, resilience, or necessarily even his conviction, but rather in his humility. After winning the Revolutionary War, Washington was the natural person to lead the country, and he would end up being our first president. And yet, had he wanted to, he would have likely easily taken the position, and many would have had him to take something like a king, who he could have continued on in leadership for the rest of his life. In fact, King George III, who was the king during the Revolutionary War, he asked to his American painter Benjamin West this question, what will they do now that Washington has won independence? What will Washington do? Benjamin West, the painter there, that American painter for King George, said, they say he will go back to the farm. To which King George replied, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. You see, the greatest mark that Washington may have left on our country is the mark of his humility to peacefully transfer power from himself to the next. And there's something about this kind of humility in a leader. This mark which grips our souls and it captivates our imaginations. What kind of a man would do such a thing? And I think the reason that it it grips our hearts and our minds is because it's an echo of our true king. Echo of the true king Jesus that truly rivets our hearts and fixates our imaginations. Because even today, as we will see on this Palm Sunday, that in Jesus' triumphal entry as king, he intends to present himself as a humble king of peace. We will be in the book of Matthew in chapter 21. If you have your copy of God's word, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 21. We will read verses 1 through 11. And before we do that, let us turn to our heavenly Father in a word of prayer. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, We have sung Hosanna unto you, our Savior. Worthy are you. You are the only worthy one. And so now, as we open your word, 
Would you grip our hearts with it? Would we be as convicted by your word as your servant Luther was 500 years ago? By the same Holy Spirit who has been alive and active in your church for 2,000 years, be alive and active in our midst now. Captivate us by the kingship and by the humility of our Savior. May we see Jesus anew. May we see his character with fresh eyes. And Lord, do a work in our hearts today. By your spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. Read with me now Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and followed him, and following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, the author of this Gospel, Matthew, has been particularly concerned from the beginning of his Gospel to this point about the kingship of Jesus Christ. He's writing to Jews, trying to convince Jewish readers of his Gospel that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Son of David, the one who will be the Messianic King of the Jews. And so from the very beginning of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to this point, Matthew's making the point, Jesus is king. And he makes that point once more in this chapter, Matthew chapter 21, where his point is Jesus is in fact king of the Jews. This is clearly pointed out because Jesus intended to do this. We see this how Jesus from the the 17th chapter of Matthew begins heading toward Jerusalem from beyond the Jordan and through Jericho and then in toward Jerusalem. Think of this route from Bethpage to the Mount of Olives and then down into Jerusalem. This would have been a very similar route to what King David, the greatest king of the Jews, would have taken as he re-entered Jerusalem after Absalom's coup, the king was returning to Jerusalem, and Jesus wants to make a clear point. The king is coming to Jerusalem. Matthew points this out clearly. In fact, Jesus, in these verses, says of himself, he tells his disciples, he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he says, go into the village that's in front of you. You'll find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them. 
All right, somebody else's donkey. What are you going to say if they want to know, why are you taking my donkey and my colt? The reason that Jesus gives is he says, tell them the Lord has need of them. Now, this is only the third time in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus refers to himself as Lord. The other two times he does this are in the Sermon on the Mount. He prefers in the Gospel of Matthew the term Son of Man, pointing out other characteristics about himself. But when it comes time for Jesus to point out his kingship, to come in in triumphal entry as the king of the Jews, he says, make sure you tell them the Lord has need of this. You see, Jesus is preparing this moment in time to show clearly and more fully who he really is, and that is king of the Jews. It is this position which will get him in trouble in just a few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. But he's just not any ordinary king of the Jews. He's a very particular kind of king of the Jews. So we see beginning there in verse 4, how he, yes, has positioned himself to come in as the authoritative king of the Jews, but he's coming to fulfill the prophecy of what kind of a king he will be. And that is the humble king of the Jews. It's a very intentional point Jesus makes starting there as Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see there in the prophecy, verse 4, this took place, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Zion would be another name for Jerusalem, so the people of God. Say to the people of God, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This prophecy in Zechariah would have been written nearly, well, over 500 years ago. Prior to Jesus' time, 500 years earlier, this prophecy comes to be written. The entirety of the way it's written in Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, there's a clear picture Jesus is painting by riding on a donkey. He could have ridden on any number of animals, and yet a donkey, in contrast to a war horse, would be a symbol of peace. It would be the symbol that David puts his son Solomon on when he gives Solomon the kingship, that Solomon would not be a king like David of war, but rather be a king of peace. So Jesus, taking up this position as David's son, rides a donkey Fulfilling scripture, yes, but also pointing out the kind of king he intends to be, a king of peace. Jesus is indeed king, and not to mention king of the Jews, but king of the entire universe as the second person of the Godhead, part of the divine trinity. But he's a certain kind of king. He's a king that brings peace through being a humble king. There are beautiful words in Zechariah continue from verse 9, which is quoted here in Matthew. In verse 10, here's what we hear this king will do that rides into Jerusalem. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and I shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Looking back at this quotation in Matthew chapter 21, we see how Jesus fulfills this prophecy as the king of the Jews. He rides in, riding on a donkey. Yes, he comes into Jerusalem as their king, as a king to bring peace. Consider for just a moment the way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. There are commoners spreading common cloaks before him. There are commoners cutting down tree branches. From other gospels, we know these are palm leaves, and they lay them on the ground, common palm leaves before him. Think of other kinds of kings and the kinds of grand processions they've had into their nations. One that comes to mind is of Napoleon. Maybe some of you have been to France before and you've been to the Arc de Triomphe. That's the giant arc there in the middle of Paris. Well, in 1806, Napoleon commissioned the creation of the Arc de Triomphe. That arc stands at the west end of the, and I'm going to get this totally wrong, my French people bear with me, Champs-Élysées. Sorry, Dave. That's at the center of the Palace Charles de Gaulle, which is in the middle of a circus with 12 radiating streets. I mean, you can imagine the central focus this had, this arc would have in the city. The reason Napoleon wanted it created was so that he could celebrate and declare the greatness of the French army, his French army, which had conquered so much during his time. Well, that arc measured at its completion 164 feet high, 148 feet wide, and 72 feet deep. To give you an idea of how immense this is, if you've never seen it, take the volume of this worship center and multiply by about three. That's how enormous this structure is to celebrate Napoleon's victories as leader of the French army. The arches in, these, in this arc were 27 feet wide and 61 feet high. Those are the small ones. The big ones are 48 feet wide and 95 feet high. It cost about $75 million to build this monument to Napoleon's French army. Well, Napoleon, not a patient man, apparently. In 1810, before the ark was finished, he had a wooden structure of it created. Why? Because he wanted him and his new bride, the Archduchess of Austria, to ride through it as they entered into Paris after their marriage. And in 1840, after Napoleon's death, his remains were exhumed and his body was paraded through the ark so that he might be celebrated once more before laid to rest. What a great deal of pomp and circumstance so that one man might be remembered throughout, well, as long as the ark would remain. Contrast this to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus rides a colt. Jesus has commoners spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus has palm branches laid before him. Things which we'll learn in just a minute have their own significance and yet are the things of common people, not $75 million worth of an ark that you could march through. Now, Jesus, had he wanted to, 
He could have had the grandest procession in the world. If he wanted to show off his kingship, the kind of kingship which Napoleon had, he could have lined the streets with seraphim angels, robed in the finest gold that anyone had ever seen, wielding swords so large that no man could possibly lift them. Jesus could have called down a heavenly host of angels, like on the day he was born, and they would have sung the Hallelujah Chorus as Jesus entered in, with trumpets pronouncing his arrival. Jesus, with a word of his mouth, could have turned the streets of Jerusalem to diamonds and once more transfigured his face to shine with the very glory of God. That's how a king could have entered. That's how Jesus might have entered to declare his kingship, and yet this is not the way that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He could have done that, and yet he chooses, as our passage says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is because Jesus is the humble king of peace. That word, humble, stands at the center of this prophecy. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. There's the beginning. Then the end, mounted on a donkey, the coal, the foal of a beast of burden. And sandwiched between these two phrases, these two parts of the prophecy, is one word, humble. This is how Jesus intends for his first time as a king to be when he enters Jerusalem. Marked with humility. You know, I think that there are probably some today, I would imagine some of you this morning, who are prone to thinking of God as one who is up there in heaven wagging his finger at sinners, ready to crush those who oppose his will. Some of you maybe grew up in a context like that, to think of God as one who is demanding perfection from you but unwilling to help you with a single aspect of your life, just ready to drop wrath on anyone who would reject him. And while this is not entirely untrue, just listen to Dave's message from a week ago. This is not the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem, the kind of king Jesus presents himself as. Reflect for just a minute here on Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Let the humility of this moment, the humility of the King Jesus coming in on a foal, let that soak into your bones. Jesus is humble. He is meek. He is lowly. The divine second person of the Trinity humbled himself so far as to become a servant for the people who he will be king over. This is the kind of humility which grips our hearts and says, why would such a high and lofty God, a king of such great magnitude, humble himself so lowly for me? Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. And yet, in his kingship, he seems to be much more interested in washing the feet of his subjects than in ruling over them. For some, God is a God of wrath, and yet Jesus does not demonstrate himself that way on this day. But rather, for all who are in Christ, what is more true of us 
than God ready to smite us is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? That's not a God ready to crush those who are sinners against him. No, for the people of God, he wants to graciously give you all things. He's not waiting for you to mess up. Or verse 33 continues on, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? No one. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Jesus did not come to be an aloof king, to stand high above you, but to be a humble king. And if you believe this, if you believe in Jesus Christ, I wonder if you will for just a minute stop beating yourself up over the past sins of your life long enough to see that Jesus does not do that to you. Your sins are washed as white as snow. Don't walk around as if you still carry on your back the burden of your sins, for Jesus has unloaded it from you. Stand upright and convinced of the freedom you have in Jesus Christ. This is the humility that Jesus came with. And he hasn't even entered Jerusalem in our text just yet. Jesus is the humble king of peace. Let's look now at the next couple of verses, verses 6 through 9, and see what happens as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They got the donkey and the colt. This is the only gospel that records there are two, and yet Jesus rides the younger of the two. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd, or it might be translated much of the crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! You see, the disciples went and go and do as Jesus directed them. They find this donkey and the colt tied up just like Jesus said. Now pause for a moment and just take in the sovereignty of King Jesus. How he has orchestrated all of human history to this point so that those donkeys would be there at that time. So that he may ride into Jerusalem as the king. Nothing about Jesus' life has been an accident. Nothing before this point, and certainly nothing in the next seven days, whether it's his triumphal entry, it's his arrest and betrayal, it's his crucifixion or his resurrection. It's all very intentional on Jesus' part. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and the crowd begins to gather and assemble around him. They're, They're putting cloaks before him and laying palm branches in front of him. And they seem like humble things, and yet they have great symbolic Uh, great symbolism in them for the people of Israel. If you go back to the ancient Israelite history in 2 Kings chapter 9, King Jehu, who was king during the divided kingdom, he was honored by the people as king by spreading their cloaks on the ground so that as he walked up the stairs into Jerusalem, the people would put their cloaks and he walked up them. And this was a recognition, Jehu is king. 
Likewise, Jesus sees the people and they are spreading the cloaks down before him, showing we are recognizing King Jesus as the King of the Jews. And then they're taking the branches from trees and the palm branch that they're cutting down from those trees is a symbol that is very closely tied with the Jewish nation. It would almost be like as they're spreading their cloaks and waving the palm branches and spreading them out, it's like King Charles, the current king of England, walking through the crowd in England to British flags being waved and everyone singing, God save the king. There's a clear moment happening here where the people in these crowds are receiving Jesus as king. They see him that way and they are using symbols like spreading their cloaks and laying down palm branches to symbolize this. See, while Jesus may have been the humble king, he was king nonetheless, and the people were receiving him as such. In fact, this claim to be king of the Jews that the crowds are proclaiming this day on Palm Sunday is the same statement that will get him in trouble with the religious leaders. Seven days from this day, when he's crucified on the cross, above his head it will say, Jesus, King of the Jews. That statement will be no less true on that day. In fact, it would be all the more true. Jesus is the King of the Jews. You know, as they are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Little do I think they understand the kind of salvation which Jesus intends to bring the kind of hosanna that Jesus brings to them. This term that they invoke, the son of David, I've used it many times here already in the sermon. This term, son of David, is a loaded term for Israel. It's hearkening back to King David and how there was a promise made to him that a son would come from David who would rule on David's throne forever. We read in 2 Samuel 7, it says, When your days are full, this is God's covenant to David. When your days, David, when they're full, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall, call, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, one of David's kids or grandkids or great-grandkids is going to be established as king in David's place. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You hear then, as Jesus enters in as the king of the Jews, the echoes that are happening here of 2 Samuel 7. Who is the one who is the offspring of David? Well, Matthew's already made it clear. Jesus comes from David's family line. Who is the one who builds a house for God, whose kingdom is forever? Well, Jesus started his kingship here on Palm Sunday, and it continues to this day through his church and his people. Who is this one who will be God will be to him a father, and he will be like a son. Well, how about Jesus, the Son of God? It is in Jesus that the long-awaited Son of David has returned, and he rides into Jerusalem just like David did. Jesus is showing how clearly he is king. And yet the 
Crowds are not just saying, Son of David, Son of David. They're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. We just sang Hosanna a bunch of times. And maybe some of you have been in church and you know what this term is. But I remember being a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old coming to church for the first times. And they sing these words and I have no idea what they mean. Hosanna. If that's you today, let me clear that. Hosanna is a Greek word of a Hebrew term that just means God saves. It's a call out that's save us. And yet by the time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's morphed into a cry of praise that God does save. So as the crowds are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they're proclaiming the salvation of God that has come. They see it. They can see the son of David who will establish David's throne and he's come to rescue and to save them. Again, I'm not sure they quite understood the kind of salvation which Jesus was going to bring. They perhaps thought that Jesus was going to establish Israel once more as a geopolitical entity. Yet the kind of salvation which Jesus intends to bring to them is far greater. It's a far better freedom than anything that is geopolitical. Jesus says he's coming to establish his kingdom. And he told us in chapter 5, what's his kingdom like? What is Jesus' forever kingdom like? Who are the people who inhabit it? He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that he's come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have, come to, uh, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the kingdom Jesus is establishing is not geopolitical. It's a spiritual kingdom. And no one gets in unless their righteousness, their purity, their holiness exceeds that of the greatest religious leaders of the time. In other words, what Jesus is saying is no one here today can enter into heaven unless your holiness and your righteousness is greater than the best missionary, the best pastor or elder that there ever was. Unless you're better than them, you're not getting in. The point is, no one is righteous enough. No one is holy enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is why King Jesus has to do one more thing before he can sit down on his throne forever. He rides into Jerusalem, but he's got another task. Just a few days ahead of him, he must die for the people to enter into his kingdom. This is the humble act that will bring peace to a rebellious people. King Jesus must die in order to save those who are sinners against him. We see this shout of Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus fulfills that Hosanna in a far better way than the people of that crowd knew. There's only one question left for us this morning. It's the same question that people asked as Jesus came into Jerusalem. Verse 10, And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. There's this grand thing happening. There's a man riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. He seems like a king and everyone's receiving him. Who is this? The crowd cries. Indeed, 
Who is this? Who is this Jesus who comes with a king's welcome and yet a humble attitude? Who is this Jesus who speaks of a kingdom of righteousness? Who is this Jesus who fulfills the scriptures, who is the descendant of David? Who is this Jesus who fulfills the crowd's hosannas? The crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This might seem anticlimactic. What do you mean, the prophet Jesus? He's not a prophet, he's the king. We've just been talking about the king. Yet this is one more time that Jesus points us to the Old Testament, where Moses, thousands of years earlier, promised there would be a prophet like him, raised up from God's people. And that prophet would have the words of God in his mouth and that he would lead the people of Israel. Who is the prophet who's coming? He's also the king who's coming. Jesus once more fulfills what God has promised. Can you see it? In the moment that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, On the canvas of human history, Jesus is pulling all of God's promises together so that in him might be God's every promise fulfilled. Through the great tapestry of human history that God has painted on Israel's history, Jesus is bringing it to full completion. And yet, just a few days later, he will do the unexpected, He will die so that sinners can be welcomed into his kingdom. So that any person who will turn away from their sinfulness and submit their lives to King Jesus will find that he is in fact the humble king of peace. That is no less true today than it was 2,000 years ago. Anyone who will turn away from their sin and see Jesus as the humble king of peace and submit to him as king can enter into his kingdom, can be welcomed into eternal paradise in heaven. So the only question left for you today is to answer the question asked to the crowd. Who is this? Who is this King Jesus? Is he for you the sinless Son of God, the humble King of peace, the Lord and ruler of your life? If he is not, pray today you would repent, turn away from your sins, believe and trust in Jesus so that you too might be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. I would love to talk to you more about that. A pastor and elder would love to talk to you more. The person you came with today would love to tell you more about how you can turn and see Jesus as king of your life. But so many of you have come here today because Jesus is king, right? He is king of your life. And not only that, he's king of the universe and you declare him to be so. This morning, may as you read the great triumphal entry, may this encourage and enliven your heart so that you see once more afresh, so that your sure, the sureness of your faith in King Jesus has been kindled once more that you may walk out of here more convicted of Jesus' kingship than you walked in here. For Jesus is the center point of God's history. 
Everything that, Jesus, that God had planned has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Amen. The King of the Jews, the King of the Gentiles, the King of the world. There's coming a day when Jesus will not come humble riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He will come on a horse as a king of righteousness. And you will behold your king as you always want him to be, high and exalted, lifted up as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. May we all long for that day that is to come. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As Jesus' name is honored on his triumphal entry, so today we honor Jesus as Lord, as King, as Prophet, as our God. We say with the crowd 2,000 years ago, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of our Lord. We praise you for sending Jesus, your son, to be a humble king. We did not deserve him. We could never have earned his sacrifice. Yet he gave himself for us. Father, we long to see our Savior and our King. We long for more people to come underneath his easy yoke, his light burden, to enter into his righteous kingdom. So, Father, we ask that you would expand your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Please send your Son soon so that we might see all things subject to him and we may enjoy the full reign of him. Like a watchman in the night, we stand ready to receive King Jesus at his return. Teach us, train us, to be ever more watchful and ready for his return. Turn our hearts toward you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus 